Michael and Palatial, UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I am Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along this evening. Boy, we've got a lot of stuff going on tonight. But before we get to all of that, let me remind you that even though we're going to give you 60 minutes jam-packed full of sports talk here this evening, next week we will not. We will be off for Thanksgiving. Just wanted to let you know that. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about more sports and getting into the conference championship games as far as college football is concerned. But tonight, Ohio State ties the school record of 22 wins in a row and goes for the record with Indiana this weekend, yet they still get no respect. The Browns blow the game at Cincinnati last week and will host Pittsburgh on Sunday. Tonight, we preview the Big Ten college basketball season, the good, the bad, and the ugly, plus we preview the Manning-Brady showdown for the 14th time on tonight's show. But first, the Texas Rangers and Detroit Tigers agreed to a deal sending Tigers first baseman Prince Fielder and cash considerations to Texas for second baseman Ian Kinsler. It was announced on Wednesday night. Fielder, 29 years old, has spent the past two seasons with the Tigers and hit 279 with 25 homers and 106 RBIs last year. He had signed a nine-year deal worth $214 million with the Tigers before the 2012 season. Tigers reporter Jason Beck talks about what the Prince Fielder for Ian Kinsler trade with Texas means for the Tigers. Tigers were looking at a payroll that was going to be very difficult to manage, you know, not just uh, you know next season in 2015, but well beyond that. What they did was they not only got themselves a leadoff hitter in Kinsler, they also bought themselves financial flexibility to at least consider long-term deals for Max Scherzer and Miguel Cabrera and uh, really reshape that offense a little bit and uh, look to get something more diversified. As much as the uh, absence of fielder is going to make a difference there at the cleanup spot, I think this has a chance to be, you know, a – you know, a a game changer for the Tigers. Kinsler has spent his entire eight-year career with the Rangers. He batted two seventy-seven last season, hit 13 homers, and drove in 72 runs. Rangers general manager John Daniels talks about the addition of Prince Fielder and the subtraction of Ian Kinsler to his team. Obviously a very exciting trade for us in uh, adding Prince Fielder to the organization. Um, uh, Also, you know, a tough trade to make in that uh, Ian Kinsler has been with the organization since he was drafted in 03. Uh, and we've signed him here a couple times, been with us, uh, been a catalyst for uh, our World Series clubs, and um, you know, been a huge part of this. Uh, winning guy, heart and soul guy, and um, uh, you know, Detroit got a, a tremendous player and, and a person there. Yeah, this deal came together pretty quickly. I think literally our, our first conversation on it was yesterday, probably late morning. And uh, uh, really picked up steam this morning, and and I uh, was done here, kind of late afternoon. You know, very very excited about about Prince, a guy that uh, really fits what we're looking for. Middle of the order, power threat, the good approach. Um, guy's durable. He plays every day. Plays hard. Uh, plays to win. And um, you know, I think he's a you know, very good complement with Adrian Beltran in the middle of our order. And uh, you know, it was a Huge focus for us this winter was uh, finding some kind of middle of the order presence and, and some power. At 29 years old, um, I still think there's a, a lot of big uh, run production in years ahead of him. 
This could be the first domino that has fallen among big-name players being dealt this winter. Of course, in two weeks will be the GM meetings, the winter baseball meetings going on, and a couple of other players that are expected to be moved could be Brandon Phillips from the Cincinnati Reds, possibly even Ryan Braun from the Milwaukee Brewers, and you could see Matt Kemp or Andre Ethier being dealt from the Los Angeles Dodgers. Well, this story just keeps getting funnier and funnier. Alex Rodriguez stormed out of his own grievance hearing Wednesday after arbitrator Frederick Horowitz ruled that Commissioner Bud Selig did not have to testify before the embattled sluggers' attorneys. Rodriguez slammed his hand on a table at Major League Baseball's Manhattan Park Avenue offices and cursed at Major League Baseball Chief Operating Officer Rob Manfred. Horowitz was in the midst of the 12th day of hearings Wednesday on the grievance filed by the Players Association to overturn the 211-game suspension given to the third baseman by Major League Baseball last summer for the violations of the sports drug agreement and labor contract. After leaving the hearing, A-Rod made a beeline across the street and unexpectedly showed up in Mike Frances's studio in New York and blasted Major League Baseball and Bud Selig on Frances's show on WFAN. It, it was very disappointing. Obviously, I've been there for 10 or 12 days, whatever's been. You know, I have my, my girls back home in Miami, and, you know, it's been difficult. But, uh, you know, respecting the process, having been offered to, to come in a million shows, haven't done anything, and just been really just taking it one day at a time and respecting the process. And today I just, I lost my mind. I banged the table and kicked a briefcase and slammed out of the room and, and just felt like this system, I, I knew it was restricted and I, I knew uh, it wasn't fair, but what we saw today is just, uh, it was disgusting. And the fact that uh, the man from Milwaukee that put this suspension on me with, with not one bit of evidence, something I didn't do, and he doesn't have the courage to come look at me in the eye and tell me this is why I did 211. I shouldn't serve one inning. And this guy should come to my to our city. I know he doesn't like New York. I love this city. I love being a Yankee. My daughters grew up in New York. And for this guy, the embarrassment that he's put me and my family through, and he doesn't have the courage to come see me and tell me this is why I'm going to destroy your career, and I have to explain this to my daughters every day. I keep coming back to the same question about this. There were 20 players that were suspended by Major League Baseball based upon the evidence that they had accumulated in this biogenesis investigation. 19 of these players accepted their punishment, accepted the evidence, and walked away without appealing. Only one man stood up against Major League Baseball saying that this evidence was bogus, and that's A-Rod. And it makes me wonder, how bogus is it? Major League Baseball spokesman Pat Courtney told the Daily News that Major League Baseball has the right, under the collective bargaining agreement, to select the person it wants to use as a witness to explain the penalty the league has settled on in a doping case. One of his lawyers, Joseph Takapino, told Michael Kay on ESPN Radio Wednesday afternoon that the case is headed to federal court where A-Rod is expected to ask for a stay of the suspension. That, of course, is assuming Horowitz upholds all or a sizable portion of the suspension. Meanwhile, Robinson Cano is the main guy on the free agent market this winter. So where is he going to land? 
Well, Ken Rosenthal examines two widely reported myths on Cano. Myth number one, that Cano is demanding $300 million. Not true. Cano asked the Yankees for $300 million before the All-Star break as his price for foregoing free agency. It is not his price now. He recognizes, and his agents have told teams, that his value will be determined on the open market. It's not a matter of $300 million. The number could be $200 million. It could be even less than that, but there is no demand in place. Myth number two, that there is no market for Robinson Cano outside of the New York Yankees. This, folks, is preposterous. Cano is an elite player, the best player on the open market right now. He is elite offensively and defensively, and he also is quite durable, having missed only 14 games in the past seven seasons. This guy is the kind of player who's going to generate a little bit of interest. Now, it might not be at the $300 million level, but for $150 million, $200 million, teams will be in. So who are we talking about? Probably not the Mets, even though their front office and ownership met with Cano's agents, including Jay-Z, at a secret Manhattan location on Monday night. But we could be talking about the Nationals. We could be talking about the Tigers, the Dodgers, the Cubs. A lot of these teams are saying they're not interested, but free agency has a funny way of working where teams suddenly emerge out of the woodwork. Now, in the meantime, the Yankees are pursuing other options, other needs that they have to fill. Catcher is one, Brian McCann. The outfield, the power hitter, Carlos Beltran. And there are others as well on the Yankees' wish list, including two starting pitchers who could combine for 400 innings. But Cano, above all, remains their focus. And, in case you missed it, the Cleveland Indians made a signing this week. They signed left-handed outfielder David Murphy from the Texas Rangers to a two-year deal with the option for a third year. Let's move into the NBA, and it's not as dramatic as saying, I'm back, like Michael Jordan did when he gave up baseball to return to basketball the first time. But Kobe Bryant returned to practice with the Los Angeles Lakers on Tuesday and brought hope back to the team and the fans. Following the Achilles heel surgery in mid-April, Bryant's initial timeline was set at six to nine months, and he has inched past the seven-month mark. Back in October, he traveled to Germany for platelet-rich plasma therapy on his right knee. Shortly after that trip, he told reporters that he would need at least three weeks of conditioning before he was ready to go. Well, he will not be going tonight against Golden State, the team has announced. The Lakers are 5-7 and seven so far this season without their franchise guard, but don't be surprised if he hits the floor somewhere around the 1st of December. It just keeps getting worse and worse for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Last night, they fell to the Washington Wizards 98-91 at Quicken Loans Arena in downtown Cleveland. Washington led by as many as 27 points before Matt Delavadova, an undrafted rookie guard who hails from Australia, helped key a Cleveland fourth-quarter push to make the final score just a little bit more respectable. But it really didn't help that this team didn't appear to try the entire night. And head coach Mike Brown had no problem exposing what he felt about the ball game last night and his team effort afterwards. We didn't compete. We had one guy that competed the entire time he was on the floor. It's Matthew Deladova. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to be funny. I mean, it's, it's, it's a concern. Yeah, I mean, but it's... That's, that's, a, that's a concern for anybody when you don't go out there and you don't compete or you don't play hard. 
you know, tell me the five guys that I, I, I put in the game can close a 30-point lead just by going out there and playing hard and getting stops? Didn't play hard. If I'm not getting it, maybe I waited a little too long. I don't know. But I got to put. I got to find guys that are gonna give it to me. So it's as simple as that. Because uh, I can't. I, I can't be in anybody's body or anybody's mind. Uh, I mean, we get paid great money to go play the game, play the game the right way, and we didn't compete. We didn't play hard. This team had a players-only meeting after the Minnesota Timberwolves game last week. Doesn't seem to have worked, even though reports said that there was a brouhaha between Dion Waiters and point guard Kyrie Irving that led to Waiters missing the next two games with a supposed illness. The Cavaliers are now 4-8 and eight on the season after their first 12 games. They've lost four of their last five. Brown was brought into this team, brought back, I guess I should say, to impose some defensive will in some of these ball players, And it just appears to me that they have absolutely no intention of playing for Mike Brown or playing defense for him. Now, you can't get rid of all 15 players on the roster, but nonetheless, something's got to be done about this basketball team and done quickly. Kyrie Irving appears to be non-existent. He scored 14 points in the fourth quarter last night, but where was he the first three quarters? And as Mike Brown said, Della Vadova is the only guy out there that appears to want to even play basketball. Tristan Thompson and Kyrie Irving got into a little bit of a shouting match between each other in the fourth quarter of last night's ball game. I don't know what Mike Brown's going to do, but somebody better do something about it quickly before Dan Gilbert steps in and does something about it. The Cavaliers, as I said, 4-8 and eight after their loss last night to the Washington Wizards. Well, the college basketball season is underway with all the preseason tournaments. And, of course, Ohio State, they came back and beat Marquette in Saturday's ballgame. Matter of fact, the football team scored more points and gave up the same amount of points that the Ohio State basketball team did. Nonetheless, that's what's going on. And tonight, as we continue on looking at our college basketball previews, we go to Doug Gottlieb out of CBS Sports. And tonight, he's going to take a look at the Big Ten and explain why Michigan State is not only the favorite for the conference championship, but also the national title. Everyone's odds on favorites not just win the league, but also make their way to Dallas in the Final Four. And why shouldn't they be? Between Adrian Payne being back, Denzel Valentine back for a sophomore year, as is Travis Trice, and then, of course, he's Appling, Gary Harris, Ben Dawson. What a team. The big question is, how will they play against quicker teams that, you know, last year, like UConn at the start of the year, or, you know, fast-forwarding to the end of the season, got under them and just kind of outquicked them. That would be the only flaw in the makeup of Michigan State, but wouldn't stun me at all if we saw them at the Final Four in Dallas in Jerry's world. Now, Ohio State has Aaron Kraft. No, he hasn't been there a decade. It's just his fourth season, and he's on his way to get married. The big question is, will he find his way to the Final Four? Remember that even though Ohio State returned seven of their top nine scores, the fact is they lost to Sean Thomas, who was their best scorer, and rebounder. So who's going to fill in? for all those shots taken and many of those shots made. Will it be LaQuinton Ross, who, of course, played really well in the NCAA tournament as an athletic freak who can play the four and even some three? Of course, he'll have Lenzel Smith, Jr. and Sam Thompson, the freak athlete, as well as Shannon Scott, 
This is a team that may struggle to score, but will be really athletic end-to-end. -end. And Aircraft has to show the desire and ability to confidently step up and knock down big-time shots. It's his team. He can carry them. I think Wisconsin will fight for a league championship this year. That's because Sam Decker is going to break out in his sophomore season. Ben Bruss still around. Remember to get Josh Gasser back for the torn ACL. And Michigan, though some people have them in the preseason top five, top ten, they will be very good, but they'll get better as the season goes on. Think about what they lost at the point guard spot with Trey Burke and, of course, with uh, you know losing a talented wing in Tim Hardaway. Uh, but Derek Walton is an elite talent at point guard, and even though Mitch McGarry is nursing a bad back now, I think that eventually McGarry and Walton will form a, a really formidable one-two punch. Now you got Zach Irvin, who's a stud freshman, and Glenn Robinson III, who came back. Robinson III is not as skilled, maybe, as he was able to hide last year, but still Michigan will overwhelm you with a ton of quickness in their backcourt and skill in their front court. And don't sleep on Indiana. Remember, Yogi Ferrell's back. They signed Noah Vonley, who's a tremendous talent, 6'10", 240-ish pounds. And Will Sheehy, who, when healthy, can play three different positions and guard all of them well. Also keep an eye on Iowa, a team who played their best fastball late in the season. Essentially, everyone is back. Yes, once again, there's a bunch of teams that are good in the Big Ten. And Michigan State is national championship caliber good. Well, that's the way the Big Ten looks, I think. Michigan State is the team to beat in the Big Ten. Our thanks to Doug Gottlieb for bringing us all of the major conference updates and previews during this time. And Ohio State's going to tip off here in just a little bit against American at the shot. Well, Lindsey Vaughn partially tore one of her reconstructed ligaments in her surgically repaired right knee in a training crash that is at the very least, is going to put her preparation for the Olympics on hold. What is less clear right now is when the four-time overall World Cup champion and 2010 Vancouver down here gold medalist might be able to compete and how her injuries might affect her Olympic hopes. In a statement on Wednesday detailing her injuries from her fall at Copper Mountain, Vaughn suffered a mild strain to her right knee, the same one she hurt in the high-speed crash at the World Championships in February. She also sustained minor facial abrasions and a bruised right shoulder blade. Vaughn has not competed since needing surgery to fix her ACL and MCL after the crash in Austria nine months ago. The ACL was re-injured on Tuesday, and she plans to just for right now rest a few days, then will pursue aggressive physical therapy and determine the next time she's able to compete after seeing how she responds to the treatment. The 29-year-old American has been aiming to return to the World Cup competition next week in Beaver Creek, Colorado. That brings us to tonight's Good, the Bad, and the Ugly segment. And, of course, our good for tonight has to be Dan Deerdorf. His long run as NFL broadcaster will end after this season. The Pro Football Hall of Famer announced on Wednesday he's going to retire after 30 years in the booth and 43 years in the NFL as an offensive lineman with the St. Louis Cardinals and an analyst for ABC and currently CBS Sports. Deardor said it was a challenge for him to travel to a different NFL city every week, so it's time for him to step aside. 
Deardorff is 64 and was named an All-Pro six times and a member of the All-Decade team in the 1970s. He was also inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a player in 1996 and won the 2008 Pete Rozelle Radio Television Award for Excellence in Broadcasting. Just listen to the list of announcers that Deardorff has worked with. First, there's Ray Scott, Lindsey Nelson, Jack Buck, Dick Stockton, Al Michaels, Frank Gifford, Vern Lundquist, Dick Enberg, and lastly, Greg Gumbel. Deardorff's broadcasting career with the CBS Radio Network began in 1984. He joined the NFL on CBS in 1985. He left CBS for a 12-year run with ABC's Monday Night Football and returned to CBS in 1999. And in case you didn't know, Dan Deardorff is from Canton, Ohio. He's our good subject for this evening. Here's the ugly. A Massachusetts high school football team will forfeit the rest of its season after some of the members were accused of spray-painting racially charged graffiti on the home of the team's only black player. According to the Boston Globe, someone wrote the phrase, Knights don't need the N-word, in blue paint on the foundation of the home of 13-year-old Isaac Phillips last Friday. Phillips, whose mother is white, his father is black, believes the vandalism was done by members of his team at Lunenburg High School. In response to the claim, Lunenburg School Superintendent Loxie Joe Calms announced Monday that the team's final game, which was a Thanksgiving rivalry game against St. Bernard's High School, scheduled for next Wednesday, would be forfeited, saying the educators and coaches of Lunenburg value diversity and we care deeply about all of the students. There will be no tolerance for racism in any form, and they will do everything they can to eliminate it from the schools and the community. As of Tuesday and as of today, no arrests were made in the case, which is being investigated by the FBI, the state police, and the DA's office. When questioned by the Globe, Police Chief James P. Marino declined to comment on whether any players had been questioned, or whether the suspects in the case are members in the Lunenburg team. However, school officials did confirm to the paper that a racial incident did occur at a recent game between Lunenburg and South, a school from Worcester. The forfeit of the St. Bernard's game will drop Lunenburg's record to 4-6 and six on the season, according to MaxPreps.com. And are bad for this evening, according to the Jackson Clarion Ledger, a high school girls basketball coach resigned on Monday after being accused of biting a player's face. I can't make this stuff up, folks. According to an assault complaint filed by the father of one of Doyle Wolverton's players at Leak Academy, Wolverton allegedly grabbed his daughter by the shirt and then bit her on the right side of the face during the team's win over Columbia Academy on November 12th. After the game, the parent, Toby Thaggard, took his daughter, whose name was redacted in the report, to the emergency room where the police noticed a bruised bite mark on the lower side of her face. Wolverton has been at Leak Academy since 1975 and ranked second nationally in high school girls basketball coaching wins. Wolverton entered the 2013 season with an all-time record of 1,245 wins against 181 losses after leading the Rebelettes 
to the state championship game last year. Now, the school said that they were saddened by the departure of Coach Wolverton, who had been an integral part of their success. Of course, he's been the only coach they've had. That was announced by headmaster Jerry Crow in a statement provided to the Clarion Ledger. Crow also added, at this juncture, they've decided to accept the resignation and they are moving forward. And thus far, the parents of the player in question have declined to press any charges. Let's move over to college football now on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. The BCS rankings are out again this week, and the top two spots did not change. Alabama State at number one, Florida State number two, then comes Ohio State. But at number four, Baylor moved up. Even though in the Associated Press rankings, Baylor has catapulted Ohio State and moved into the number three spot, while the Buckeyes stayed at number four. Now, the question is, and I... I've purposely not talked about this this evening, and I don't want to get into the pending possible charges against Florida State quarterback Jameis Winston. But if Winston does get charged, Florida law states that he would be immediately suspended if he is charged with a felony in the investigation that is going on about him on sexual assault down in the state of Florida. That means Florida State would be stuck with their third-string quarterback. Now, what happens then? If Florida State is without their Heisman Trophy candidate quarterback, what happens to Florida State and what happens to the rankings then? We're just going to have to sit around and find out. Meanwhile, Ohio State has won 22 in a row, and they're going for number 23 this weekend. But Coach Urban Meyer has plenty of reasons to campaign against the BCS system as computer rankings and the strength of schedule could be two aspects to keep the Buckeyes from playing from the BCS title. With the number three Buckeyes under intense scrutiny every week and Baylor closing the gap in the BCS standings as they do every week and potentially in position to leapfrog his team, which probably will happen next week, especially if Baylor beats Oklahoma State this weekend. Meyer came out this week and voiced his frustration while trying to deflect the attention away from the polls and the computer formulas. Listen to what Meyer had to say. Without spending much time on it, because it's not fair to our team for me to spend much time on it, but I will say this, that uh, uh, I think it's a flawed uh, system, but when you logically think about it, it what, what the BCS people have done, uh, which obviously we're all part of it, I think it was great for a while. And I think uh, we took an imperfect system and did the best you can without forcing a playoff. Now I, I imagine this, but there's going to be controversy in playoffs too now. There's not a, you know, 60-14 playoff. So you're going to have four guys. What's that 15 going to feel like? Whether it's the current system or the playoff system that Meyer spoke about that will be in place next year, this controversy that accompanies college football's postseason just is never going to go away. But is Ohio State being treated fairly? And I want to look at that tonight. Let's examine. Just listen to ESPN's Danny Cannell and what his thoughts are on Meyer's comment. Well, I mean, obviously the BCS is a flawed system. I think everybody could agree on that. I find it very interesting that we never heard from Urban Meyer, nary a peep from him when he was in the SEC, where you have the luxury of winning or losing games at home and still getting what is amounted to an automatic bid 
to the BCS title game. Now he's in the Big Ten. He's realizing, hey, some things aren't exactly fair out there. And now he's voicing his opinion. But I agree with him. The BCS system is flawed. And I think we're heading a step in the right direction by going to the 14 playoff. No kidding, Canal. I mean, take a look at it. If you're in the SEC, you've got a leg up on the competition the way it is anyway. The biggest proponent of an ACC-SEC national championship game is ESPN. It's an all-letter network. It seems whatever the Buckeyes do just isn't good enough to impress the voters. Let's listen to what Bucknuts.com writer Mac Bexendell said Tuesday on CBS Sports Radio 92.3, The Fan in Cleveland, about what Meyer had to say to his team about the BCS system. Urban knows what he's doing. People forget the year Florida won the national championship over Ohio State. They were fourth in the BCS going into the final day of the the championship games there before the final BCS was set. And his team ended up at the title game. That doesn't happen without a little bit of push from his side. Uh, I think Urban saying the BCS is a flawed system is the same line of thought as people complaining about umpiring in baseball, for example. Two-thirds of the BCS is human polls, and humans are inherently flawed. When you have people on national TV talking about, you know, all kinds of logic about how Ohio State doesn't get credit for going last undefeated last year because it's last year, but they still have to answer for championship losses from six, seven years ago, then, you know, you're looking at an inherently flawed system, and honestly, if all four teams stay undefeated, I would really like somebody to come out and flat out say it. Can we just start the playoff this year? Because that might be the best solution. It's a certain amount of uh, controversy. What's the phrase? Controversy creates cash, I believe was the phrase. It's TV. Evan Spencer made a joke two weeks ago about how, I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but I think we wiped the floor with Alabama and Florida State, you know, but, hey, I'm biased. All the national media quoted was, I think we wiped the floor with Alabama and Florida State. And it made it out like he was one of the Miami players going to the Fiesta Bowl in the 80s wearing camo and talking trash like a rapper. And that's the exact opposite of what he did. The bottom line is, Urban Meyer is trying to do something right now where he's not being overly disrespectful. But you notice the last two weeks people have talked more about Ohio State and where they stand because of these little midweek tips that the national media seizes on. And I think at this point, anything that Ohio State can do to get voters to sort of reassess where they stand and sort of look at it again. Because you remember, all these voters at Ohio State at number two in the preseason polls. For whatever reason, the AP now has them at fourth, which is ridiculous. But Urban Meyer is trying to do everything he can as a coach without taking his players' focus away from it to kind of nudge the voters in the media and say, look, you really need to reconsider what you're doing here. Ohio State has won 22 in a row. This is the longest school winning streak since the 1967 through 1969 season. Yet the Buckeyes get no notoriety for this. The Big Ten, according to the national media, is a joke. It's non-existent. The team's in at stake. Because of this, the national media gives no credence to the conference, the Buckeyes' winning streak, or the schedule Ohio State plays. Now, to the national media, they think Ohio State plays patsies every Saturday, and a big win isn't enough. Yet a 25-point win on the road in Illinois is a disgrace and calls for a demotion in the polls, and the BCS are called for Bucknuts writer Matt Baxendell again says the AP voters haven't been given a, haven't been giving Ohio State a fair or realistic chance in their voting this season. There's no excuse for it. There's voters in the AP. There's this moron out in San Jose named John Wilner who has them seventh in his poll. Seventh. How that's logical, I don't know. And if you look at 
the AP. Somehow Baylor winning a game 63-34 to against a team that's not very good in a neutral field is somehow better than Ohio State winning a game 60-35 to on the road in bad conditions. Uh, to me, they're the exact same game, and if anything, Ohio State jumped out to a 28 nothing and a 35-7 lead, so they won- their biggest lead was 28, and they won by 25. Meanwhile, Baylor was only up one point at halftime against a bad Texas Tech team. How that suddenly is enough to make people think Ohio State should be dropped is beyond me. And it's again, it's another example. Like I said last week, they're the only team in, in the coaches' poll from a major conference in the last 10 years to get dropped while remaining undefeated. Only Boise State and company get that treatment, and now apparently the Buckeyes. I mean, Alabama can win 20-7 to against a 4-5 and team on the road, and they call it workmanlike and businesslike. But Ohio State wins by 25 on the road, and people think it's the apocalypse and the sign that Ohio State would have four losses in the SEC. It's ridiculous. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is that if Alabama's getting credit for being a national champion three of the last four years, then Ohio State should get credit for being undefeated last year. You can't have your cake and eat it, too, and say, well, Alabama's previous seasons count, but Ohio State's don't. Florida State's previous seasons don't count where the ACC was terrible, but they're good this year against a very bad schedule, so it clearly counts. This is a situation where it's hypocrisy in regional voting right now. Nobody wants to apply anything in terms of logic and fairness across the board. It's people's preconceived notions of Ohio State. And for whatever reason at this point, people still don't consider Ohio State beating Oregon in the Rose Bowl, beating Arkansas from the SEC in SEC country in the Sugar Bowl. They don't count those games. They pretend they never happened and keep talking about LSU in Florida. When those games were, I mean, the kids who are all in college football now were all in middle school when those games happened. How that has an effect on today is beyond me. But that's what the national media keeps propagating about the Buckeyes. So again, let's examine. Saturday, look at the teams Alabama and Florida State will play. Alabama hosts Division 1AA FBS Chattanooga. Chattanooga! They're 8-3 and three overall, but they play an FBS schedule, which is one division down from the BCS schedules that these teams play. Also, Florida State is playing Idaho. Idaho! They're known for potatoes. 1-9 Idaho. Their claim to fame, besides potatoes, was Dennis Erickson used to coach there in the 1980s. Another Division I AA or FBS school, however you want to look at it now. Where's the outrage over this? Where is the outrage from Kirk Herbstreet, who two months ago clamored for Ohio State to be embarrassed for playing Florida A&M? You know, when it comes to Kirk Herbstreet, he does more to run away from his roots in Ohio than Robert Smith does on ESPN, Jay Taylor, Jay Crawford, I'm sorry, on ESPN, and Eddie George does on Fox Sports. They all grasp their Ohio State Buckeye roots. So let's examine the schedules. Ohio State's non-conference schedule included Buffalo, San Diego State, California, and Florida A&M. Only one FBS school and teams with a combined record of 18 wins and 25 losses. Now, what about Alabama? They started out with Virginia Tech, always overrated by ESPN and AP. Every year, Virginia Tech is slated up high, and they end low. Then there's Colorado State, which basically is the equivalent of Buffalo, Georgia State, and now Chattanooga. Now, without taking into consideration the loss that Chattanooga is going to sustain this weekend, 
Alabama's non-conference schedule includes two FBS schools and teams with a combined record of 21 wins and 22 losses, but 13-9 on BCS schools. Meanwhile, there's Florida State. None, they, they come from a rich football conference in the ACC, right? Wrong. They've played Pitt, Nevada, another equivalent of Buffalo. Then comes Bethune-Cookman and Idaho on Saturday. So again, two FBS schools. The combined records, 19 wins and 23 losses. So Ohio State's wins in non-conference games might be tainted somewhat. However, they came at the expense of three BCS schools compared to only two for Alabama and Florida State. Yet, again, where is the outrage? Where's Kirk Herbstreet? Where's the cynicism over the Alabama and Florida State schedules? As Matt Baxendell states, nobody says a peep about the Tide or the Seminole schedule. The truth of the matter is, is that Ohio State's the only one of these contenders who's having a schedule held against them. If you look at who Baylor's played, there are only two road games of the year at Kansas and at Kansas State, both of whom aren't very good. Before they played Oklahoma, they had not played a team yet all year with a pulse. Uh, if you look at Florida State, they beat Clemson, which is a nice win. Clemson seems to be a good team. About the same level as, say, I don't know, Ohio State beating Wisconsin. But the rest of the ACC schedule that they've played is terrible. Miami's out of the top 25 now. Uh, Duke is going to be who they play in the ACC title game. Duke! Uh, Duke was the worst team of all major conference teams in the country like five years ago. And they're going to probably play in the ACC title game. People are holding Ohio State's schedule against them. And here we're, candidly, the Big Ten, while not a great league, I think the Pac-12 and the SEC are better leagues this year. But the top three in the Big Ten of Ohio State, Wisconsin, and Michigan State, I would put those top three against almost anybody in the country's top three. I think they'd be very competitive. People forget Wisconsin should be a one-loss team if they weren't host by those Pac-12 refs at Arizona State. And I actually read today that if you took Arizona State, or you took that loss to Arizona State and turned it into a win in the computer ratings, Wisconsin jumps from the mid-20s to the top 10 in every computer poll. And what that effect would be on Ohio State in the computers would be monumental in terms of bumping the Ohio State up from fifth in the computers to as high as third in a lot of them. So people want to talk about the Big Ten as a bad league. Maybe the bottom half of the league, the top three are as good as anybody in the country this year. People don't want to talk about the ACC's 3-13 and BCS record all-time or Florida State's 2-5 and BCS bowl record. They, they don't want to talk about Urban Meyer being 4-0 in BCS games, Ohio State having the most BCS wins of any school, or the Big Ten being a 500 BCS team all-time. But, you know, it's fun that Florida State's apparently the best team ever. I'm not trying to spin it here about anything. I'm just trying to present the facts. Ohio State's schedule, if you want to talk about it, its relative inadequacies, then you have to talk about the terrible schedules that uh, Baylor and Florida State have played. That's only reasonable. You want to talk about how good Alabama is, that's fine. But we have to call a spade a spade. When you turn the ball over four times against a 4-5 and five team and only win by 13 points, uh, that was something that not only I have said it, but Stuart Mandel writes for Sports Illustrated. He's part of that media. He tweeted on Saturday night that, uh, if Ohio State had won 20 to 7 against a 4 and 5 team on the road, people would be screaming. They aren't screaming about Alabama. The truth of the matter is, is that there are some people who refuse to believe that there is an agenda being set by the national media. They refuse to believe that Ohio State is still having these title games held against them. Then there's everybody else who actually listens to what they're saying. You ever listen to a guy like Mark May? They say, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The truth of the matter is, is that people, for whatever reason, don't want to give Ohio State credit for wins. And that is the truth. 
far as Mark May is concerned, the guy's an idiot anyway. But here's another interesting facet. If you look at the non-conference teams that the three teams have played, Ohio State, Alabama, and Florida State, what team has the best record out of all the non-conference teams that these teams have played? Well, Bethune-Cookman, an FBS school, they're 9-2. and two. But what team has the best record of any of the three non-conference schools that these teams have played? Buffalo. They're 8-3. and three. And who beat them? Ohio State. Alabama, the best non-conference record that they're going to be playing is Chattanooga this weekend, and that's 8-3, and three, and they'll be 8-4 and four once they leave Alabama. Now, Ohio State's going to host Indiana, then travel to Michigan for the regular season finale on November 30th. One more win will lock up a place in the Big Ten title game for the Buckeyes, and if they finish that stretch 13-0, it still probably won't be enough to play for the BCS title if Alabama and Florida State finish undefeated as well. Next Saturday, Alabama's playing Auburn. And as Baxendell says, Ohio State fans should be worried about that ball game. They really, really, really are concerned with Auburn winning that game. I mean, Auburn wins that game. They're not going to vault the Buckeyes because they're a one-loss team. And people talked about Stanford, but that was never going to happen if you listen to Jerry Palm and all the BCS gurus out there. Auburn's not going to jump Ohio State. Alabama will fall below Ohio State. And Auburn, even if they beat Alabama, are they so certain to win the SEC championship? I said this a couple months, like I think a month ago, we were talking about Oregon as the one-loss team or Stanford as the one-loss team or any of those one-loss teams. There will not be a one-loss team jumping Ohio State or Baylor. It's going to be a question of will Ohio State be able to get into the title game if they're still undefeated because there are more than one other undefeated team. One-loss teams are not part of the national title equation, and even the talking heads during the BCS announcement show on Sunday night said that, that if one-loss teams become part of the discussion, which one-loss team is the best, they said they needed at least three losses from the top four. As Meyer pointed out, even a playoff, which would likely include Ohio State and Baylor if it did start this year, won't solve the issue of a team feeling snubbed by the process. Just look at the bottom line on ESPN every Saturday morning if you want further proof. It previews all the games for the day and what stations they can be seen on. Check out the games in the networks. Texas Games on the Longhorn Network, owned and paid for by ESPN. Florida State Games on the ACC Network, owned and paid for by ESPN. Alabama on the SEC Network, owned and paid for by ESPN. Saturday Night Football on ABC, which owns ESPN, and the games on ESPN. Any game on a station not owned or paid for by ESPN, such as Fox or CBS or NBC like Notre Dame, well, that network isn't on the bottom line. ESPN is looking out for their best interest. You can't blame them for that. But when they start influencing a championship, then there's a problem. They also are going to be televising the BCS title game this year and the Rose Bowl. Those are their best interests. They want a ratings bonanza. Alabama and Florida State in the national championship game is their deepest, darkest desire, with Ohio State playing high-flying Oregon in the Rose Bowl. This gives ESPN possibly the best four teams in college football, just what they have bought and paid for. Well, we've already gone over some of the top 25 college football schedule for this weekend. As I said, number one Alabama will be hosting Chattanooga. That's at 2 o'clock 
on Saturday. And also on Saturday, Florida State will be hosting Idaho. And Jimbo Fisher of the Seminoles says his team is maturing at the right time. I've been impressed. Jameis has done a very nice job all season of of uh, not being a redshirt freshman as far as his mental approach to playing and competing. Younger players in our on our team and organization are growing and making big contributions. So we're adding depth. We're creating competition in practice. And I think and both sides compete against each other every day. And I think making each other better. And I don't think we're concentrating on winning the games, which has got me excited. I think we're concentrating on playing well. And I think they really get that point. We just need to keep playing well and not worry about the results. And they're buying into that, and we're doing it. It's a very fun – I mean, those are guys – they're ball players, man. Those guys are ball players. I mean, they, they – I mean, if you played in the parking lot and played in shorts and played tackle or whatever, I mean, they just would play anywhere, anytime. And if you played 10 hours a day and had to practice, they'd be the happiest guys in the world. They just love to play ball and committed to winning and being successful and fun to coach. Elsewhere, Baylor will be at Oklahoma State. Of course, that's the ABC game on Saturday night. Should be the first tough test Baylor has had this year, especially on the road. And Art Bryles, their head coach, talks about their game with the Cowpokes of Oklahoma State. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge game. It's a huge game because of what our team has done, you know, what their team has done. That's what makes it a big game. I mean, if whatever team that, that Oklahoma State was playing this week or Baylor was playing this week, it was going to be a big game because of what they've done up through the season and what we've done up through the season. You know, it just has to be we're playing each other. Uh, so I, I think that's just when you get late in the season and, and you've had a good run, then that's that's what happens. And fortunately, you know, we're in it. We, you know, we've been on the other side, and it's, it's a good deal. Well, number five, Oregon will be at Arizona on Saturday afternoon. Also, Auburn is off this weekend. They're preparing for their big battle with Alabama next week. The Clemson Tigers will be at the Citadel on Saturday afternoon. The Missouri Tigers are at Ole Miss in the SEC. Then comes Texas A&M and Johnny Manziel. They're heading to the Bayou to take on LSU. And Kevin Sumlin discusses Johnny Football's pursuit of a second Heisman Trophy Award and LSU. We've got a couple big stages here for our football team. And, uh, you know, anytime you're playing, LSU's a prideful program uh, with a great, great, uh, tradition and history uh, to go over there and play and uh, to be successful there. We're going to have to play well as a team, and, and he's going to have to play well. And same thing the next, the following week with uh, Missouri, which will have implications for our league uh, and probably who represents the East. So uh, performances by our complete team and by him uh, to close out the season are going to have a lot to say about Awards for all kinds of folks. The awards for uh, and 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 where we're going to be uh, in the bowl conversation. And we we know that. And we we've got to handle that uh, one at a time. But but everybody understands where we are. And and um, you know we're going to, have to play well against both these teams. And we're going to, have to play well this week uh, to go to Tiger Stadium and win. And you know that's I think that's what they say. That's where teams. Dreams go to die or something like that. Isn't that where it goes? So um, we're trying to keep our dreams alive. Well, Kevin Sumlin has to because he may not get that USC job if he doesn't. Elsewhere in the top 25, California will be at the Stanford Cardinal. Also, the South Carolina Gamecocks will entertain Coastal Carolina. 
Michigan State goes to Northwestern, another win by the Spartans, and they clinch a spot in the Big Ten Championship game on December 7th. Arizona State is at UCLA. New Mexico goes to Fresno State. In the Big Ten, it's Wisconsin at Minnesota. Rutgers will be at the University of Central Florida. Elsewhere in the top 25 around college football on Saturday, it will be Arizona State at UCLA. The Louisville Cardinal will be entertaining Memphis. It's Oklahoma at Kansas State. USC will play at Colorado. It's Ole Miss and Missouri, as I said. And the final game in the top 25, the Duke Blue Devils, believe it or not, they're ranked in the top 25. They will be at Wake Forest. And that rounds out the top 25 in college football for this Saturday. That means we move into professional football, and boy, there's some matchups for this weekend. But before we get into that, perennial All-Pro linebacker Derek Brooks and wide receiver Marvin Harrison were among the 25 semifinalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame's class of 2014, which was announced last night. Tackle Walter Jones and coach Tony Dungy were the first-year eligible candidates to make the cut from 126 to 25. Brooks won a Super Bowl with Tampa Bay, while Harrison and Dungy were champions with Indianapolis. Other star players and coaches being considered for induction into the Canton, Ohio Shrine next August include place kicker Morton Anderson, running back Jerome Bettis, defensive end and linebacker Charles Haley, safety John Lynch, and defensive end Michael Strahan. Former Commissioner Paul Tagliabue also made the semifinals, Two other previously eligible candidates made the final 25 for the modern era. That was coach Jimmy Johnson and guard Steve Wisniewski. Johnson won two Super Bowls, leading the Dallas Cowboys to those higher lofts. The Hall of Fame election will be held February 1st. That's the night before the Super Bowl in New York City. Well, at the beginning of the year, tonight's Thursday night matchup seemed like a pretty good one. Now, it seems like a bummer. New Orleans is going to be in Atlanta taking on the Falcons. And like I said, it looked like it was going to be a very good matchup, but now it just doesn't seem like there's any excitement about tonight's ballgame. New Orleans has trouble winning on the road. Atlanta, on the other hand, has had trouble winning the entire year. They've only won two games. That game's going to kick off here oh, in about a half an hour on the NFL Network. Here's a look at what's going on elsewhere in professional football. If the Cleveland Browns ever want to fully arrive in the AFC North, they're going to have to learn to win some big ball games. It was thought three weeks ago that they may have figured out how to do that when they beat the Baltimore Ravens. Then they went on a bye week, and that feeling quickly eroded last Sunday when they lost in Cincinnati to the first-place Bengals. Now comes the Pittsburgh Steelers. No quarterback has done more to destroy the Cleveland Browns' hopes throughout the years than Ben Roethlisberger. Still, it's the Steelers and the Browns, always a rivalry. This is the first time that Coach Rob Chudzinski, who grew up being a fan of the Browns and knowing the influence that this game can have on the fans around Cleveland, will be involved in. He's ready 
for his first rivalry game. He just hopes that his team is. Steelers week. There's a real sense of excitement uh, with our team. It's in the air in the building. Uh, good, be good to be back at home. Uh, Pittsburgh's been playing great football uh, since they're by. Uh, they have an outstanding coaching staff. Uh, I have a lot of respect for that group. And they're coming off a big win versus Detroit. Uh, offensively, as you look at them, uh, very versatile. They can attack you in different ways. Uh, an explosive offense. And everything starts with their quarterback, with Ben Roethlisberger. Again, the approach we've taken is one week at a time. Uh, this is a division game. It's the most important game that we have this week, and we'll treat it that way. Well, let's hope that they do, because lately Pittsburgh has owned Cleveland. It took a Charlie Batch start last year for the Steelers and eight turnovers for the Browns to even win. And the Browns are trying to prove they belong. Kickoff is Sunday at 1 o'clock, and the game will be televised on CBS Sports. Now, here's a look at the rest of the early games in the NFL for Sunday afternoon. Tampa Bay will be at Detroit. I'm going to take Detroit in that ballgame, even though Tampa Bay has won two in a row. Minnesota will be at Green Bay. This one will be a tough game to pick, although I think I'm going to go with Green Bay since Minnesota is without Christian Ponder. Jacksonville is at Houston. Hey, Jacksonville won. Houstonville, or Houston lost. Still going to go with Houston. That's a 1 o'clock game. The New York Jets will be in Baltimore. Boy, this game signifies a couple of homecomings. Rex Ryan and Ed Reed coming to Baltimore where they made their names in the NFL, but only this time for the New York Jets. That game's at 1 o'clock on CBS. And Brian Billick takes a look at this matchup between the Jets and the Ravens. Huge game with the New York Jets playing the Baltimore Ravens. Now, for the Jets, it's real simple. Win one, lose one, win one, lose one. Where are we on the Geno Coaster? Well, based on their history, should be an up game because he had just a horrendous game last week against the Buffalo Bills. Don't know whether he did too much at Dave and Buster's the night before. Don't think they're going to do that again. Baltimore Ravens are really struggling. They actually ran the ball pretty good against the Chicago Bears in that odd game that was delayed for almost two hours. The defense is struggling, and Joe Flacco, with a running game, couldn't produce much in the passing game. Obviously, the Ravens are a very proud organization, up and down for them. That sixth spot in the AFC is wide open, and beating the Jets would take them a long way to it. The Jets should be on an up cycle. Rex Ryan, obviously, anytime time he comes back and plays the Ravens, I don't know how to handicap the Jets in terms of them being up and down. This should be an up game. I think Baltimore wins this contest. San Diego is at Kansas City. I'm going to stick with the Chiefs in that one to bounce back after losing their first game last week in Denver. Chicago will be at St. Louis, and I'm going with the Bears. Carolina will be at Miami. That rounds out the early games on the Sunday afternoon. And I'll stick with Carolina to win that ballgame. Now, the late afternoon games, there's three of them. Indianapolis will be at Arizona. I take the Colts in that one. Tennessee at Oakland. I'm going to go with Oakland to win that ballgame. And it will be Dallas at New York to take on the Giants. I think the New York Giants will continue their winning ways and win that ballgame. And the Sunday night game, well, again, Denver at New England, Peyton against Tom Brady. This will be their 14th regular season meeting. And NFL announcer and analyst for Fox Sports, Curtis Conway, examines 
what Brady and Manning are doing this season and which quarterback is actually playing better. You know what I've always said? I thought that Tom Brady had a stronger arm. When you see the zip that he puts on the ball versus a Peyton Manning, it's a little more velocity behind it, tighter spiral. But when it comes to game managing the game and, and, and being able to dictate what the defense is doing, I think they both do a great job at that. And they've really transcended the game in terms of the passing game because what they're both doing, and now you see Drew Brees is doing it a lot of, they're throwing the ball inside to their slot guys and their tight ends. That's the mismatch, linebackers, safety versus your tight ends and your running backs. So both of those guys, I love them because they're doing that part together. But I say Tom Brady has a stronger arm. As I said at the top, this will be their 14th regular season meeting between Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. What two Super Bowl winning quarterbacks met more times than 14? Johnny Unitas and Bart Starr. They met 16 times in their career. And the Monday night game, San Francisco will be at Washington. Colin Kaepernick against RG3. And in that ball game, I think you got to go with San Francisco. They need a win desperately. That's going to be at 8:40 on ESPN. And that rounds out what's going on in the NFL for this weekend. One more story before we sign off for tonight. And it goes to boxing. Manny Pacquiao's trainer Freddie Roach said the boxer will use Sunday's fight against Brandon Rios to punish members of the Rios camp who mocked Roach's speech which is affected by Parkinson's disease. What a nasty thing to do. Roach is 53 and was kicked by his former co-worker and Pacquiao cornerman Alex Ariza, now in the Rios camp, assisting head trainer Robert Garcia. And while Roach initially called for police to arrest Ariza, he laughed off the seriousness of the confrontation a day later. The fallout from Wednesday's physical confrontation between Roach and the Rio camp continued Thursday with Roach saying Pacquiao had watched video of the heated incident in which Roach was kicked and his speech mocked. Pacquiao said to me, are those guys, are those the guys that made fun of you? And Roach said, I told him yes. Pacquiao said, that's all I need to know, and he walked away. Sunday's fight, which is Saturday night U.S. time with an undercard beginning at 7 p.m., will be Pacquiao's first since getting savagely knocked out by Juan Manuel Marquez almost a year ago. The Filipino, once regarded as pound for pound the best fighter in the world, is keen to restore his standing in the boxing world after successive defeats against Marquez and a much-criticized judging decision in favor of Tim Bradley. Pacquiao has not stopped an opponent since he fought Miguel Cotto four years ago. i got to go with Manny Pacquiao in that fight. He's a year older. Probably deeper in debt, but I still think Pacquiao comes out on top. He's got more incentive to win this fight. And that's going to do it for tonight's show. Glad you stuck around with us for this evening. Boy, we've talked about a lot, not only Robinson Cano, but also taking a look at the A-Rod incident and the Ohio State Buckeyes and how they're being misled by the national media. Don't forget, next Thursday night, we will not be with you. It's Thanksgiving. We're going to celebrate it with friends and family. Hope that you'll come back and join us the week after next as we bring you another Ultimate Sports Talk show. As always, this music signifies that the show is out. Thanks for joining us tonight. 
My thanks to Greg Mitchell being the producer for tonight's show. But most of all, our thanks to you for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell. We're off next week. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, have a happy Thanksgiving, a good weekend, a good week, and have a good night, everybody. Take it easy. Good night. Good night.